This is the Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Every game. You are going to go back to throw the ball. Sets up, look, throws toward the corner of the end zone. It is intercepted! Intercepted! The next the ball! Every story. If we just continue to push and grind and go and take care of our guys, it's going to be built to last. The Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck owner, Justin Hopkins. And Matt Bagley from 96.1, 580, The Game. My name's Matt Bagley. Justin Hopkins is across the interwebs via Zoom chat with me. This is Scoop Duck and Hi-Fi. And this week, I hope, J-Hop, there isn't going to be any news that breaks while we're taping this because it feels like every week that happens. Uh, Last week, we we talk about the Pac-12 schedule and and we talk about kind of the, the changing in our world right now and how that change is going to be felt at Oregon. And we miss the Marion Winston signing. What are we going to miss this week? Yeah, it's it's uh, you never know. Uh, I, you know, uh, I guess Thursday is like the hot day, you know. So, but uh, as we were talking about before, I guess, you know, we could do a podcast every other day or something and probably catch up on news. But uh I guess that's the good and the bad about doing once a week. We have a, we have a few things to talk about now, but you know, by the time we get back around to it next Wednesday or Thursday, there will be a whole host of things that have transpired in the meantime. But uh, I think a lot to get into this week. You know, we're hearing reports about the Pac-12 and the, and the schedule and the season. Um, you know, uh, state high school programs are making decisions on fall sports. You know, that's a very hot topic at the at the moment and the ducks we actually going to sneak it in the ducks just landed a new commit this week a class of 2021 commit in christian burkhalter so we can talk about that as well yeah hey let's lead off with that christian burkhalter tell me about what he brings to the program yeah um you know it, it it's one of those things i think for most casual fans you're going to look at that and be like who's this kid why you know he's not a four star he's not a five star and uh but you got to go look at his film. You got to go look at the, the way this kid plays football. He's six foot five, 230, 235 pounds, just a tremendous athlete. You know, again, one of those longer athletic types that you just don't find in abundance out West. And, you know, let's face it. Mario Cristobal is very well aware that his scholarship numbers are tight and that he's got to manage that very carefully, but he must've felt strongly enough at this point to go ahead and take a commitment from Burkhalter. So I'm definitely going to trust his evaluation over my own or over that of somebody just, you know, watching his film on the internet. So I like it. Uh, again, you're back in um, in the state of Alabama pulling another recruit away. Um, this guy had some solid offers, Nebraska, uh, you know, and some other offers there that, uh, you know, really popped him up on the radar. I think this is a tremendous get. And what I like here. Not every guy that Oregon pulls at this point or in this class needs to be a instant impact kind of guy. So you get a guy like a Kayvon Thibodeau, or you get a guy like a Dante Manning or a Noah Sewell, you're kind of expecting those guys to be instant impact type players. Maybe they don't start, but they contribute. Maybe they do start. Who really knows? But you go and get a guy like a Christian Burkhalter, and in my opinion, he might be a little bit more of a developmental guy. But if you're getting enough of those instant impact guys, you need a combination. You need a blend. 
I think Burkhalter does that. He comes in and, and, and hits the weight room and works with Coach Feld and, and flies around and learns from Thibodeau for a year. And who knows, a year or two, maybe even three down the line, you've got yourself a two, three-year player uh, you know, that makes a big impact in your program. And I think that's, what, I think that's the expectation for Burkhalter. I think that's the message to take away here. Uh, like you're saying, not everybody needs to be Kayvon Thibodeau and contribute right away. You're going to have guys that are projects. And when I compare this situation to some of the recruiting done, say, at other schools like an Oregon State or, or even go down a peg and, say, a Boise State or what Marcus Arroyo is doing at UNLV, you go out and get a three-star guy like Christian Burkhalter and you trust that your program can develop him over the four or five years that you have him. The difference at Oregon, obviously, is they might have the best player development program on the West Coast, right? With, with the weight room and with Coach Feld, they really believe you take a kid that's six foot five and you put him in the weight room, you bulk him up, and when he's a junior and he's ready to contribute – you think he's going to really contribute, you know? Yeah, yeah. Not And again, uh, an example of that, I know it was cut short a little bit, but was Gus, Gus Cumberlander last season. You know, hadn't really made a big impact uh, along the defensive line for Oregon much of his career, but uh, before his injury, you know, he was, he was really, really starting to make an impact there. Uh, Bryson Young, much the same for Oregon, um, you know, came in with some fairly lofty expectations, but just needed time to develop, and, and he was – uh, a big force uh, in, in last year, really the last year and a half or so for Oregon. So sometimes that's just the case. And I think more so that's the case with, with, with linemen. You know, you need to see linemen be able to to grow and mature. And I don't mean that from a mental standpoint. I just mean that from a physical standpoint. Right. Uh, again, a guy like Christian Burkhalter, uh, you know, in a year or two, you're talking about a guy that could end up being 6'5", 6'6", 250-ish pounds, and he's a really good athlete. So – you know, you're going to always find a guy. Uh, uh, you're always going to find room for a guy like that on your roster. And one last thing on this kid: uh, Ducks securing a commitment from an Alabama three-star defender, Christian Burkhalter. I've heard some sources say he's an outside linebacker. Some say a defensive end. I think about the stud position in Coach Avalos's defense. Uh, where do you see his fit? That's a that's a hundred percent where I see him. I see him as a stud. I see him as a guy coming in and competing for Thibodeau's spot uh, in a year or two or whenever he's ready. But uh, I mean, we all know Thibodeau is going to be a three and out player, right? Uh, right. So you got two more years there of him. I, I'll so. draft him right now. Yeah, yeah. There's there's <laughs> a lot of teams that I think would for sure. But uh, but yeah, I think you're looking at at Burkhalter as a as a really good fit there. Um, and again. I guess you kind of phrase him more as an outside linebacker than a defensive end, in my opinion, because he's not going to have his hand down in the dirt all that much. Uh, he may creep, creep up to the line of scrimmage and put his hand down every now and then, but he's going to be standing up a lot and moving around. Uh, and again, with that wingspan, with that size, with that athleticism, this is a really, really good guy to get on your campus and, uh, you know, and put some time developing into for the next couple of years. All right. Now let's transition into the, the time on the campus that the team might be taking right now. You, you mentioned right off the very top that we're expecting very soon a Pac-12 schedule reveal. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, you know, you and I recording this on a Thursday. I know this morning started out with John Wilner uh, posting his thoughts or what he'd been hearing uh, that uh, the season, Pac-12 is looking at a 10-game season uh, that would start around September 19th. Um, you know, I've heard uh, – what I've heard is similar to that. I've, I've heard the 10-game season. I think that's the most likely scenario to happen. That almost seems to be a, a certainty at this point. Uh, the start date, what I've heard is September 19th. Uh, so my understanding is this, that the Pac-12 and all the coaches and all the athletic directors, they're really trying to come up with a couple contingency plans. So not just, hey, we're going to start on September 19th. That's it. We're moving forward. I think the earliest they would like to start is September 19th. I think that's the first date. If things go well, if the p- pandemic cools down, if, if there's not a massive outbreak, if they feel comfortable and feel that they can safely start the season at September 19th in two, three, four weeks, whatever the case might be, they will move forward with that. And I think that's the most ideal. The sooner you can start, I think the better off you are. Uh, if, if that isn't the case, if things continue to trend negatively and you see more cases and a spike and just an outreach, I know they have contingencies to start maybe in October, early October, and mid-October versus that mid-September start date. Um, again, I think you'll have. I think that will be the scenario. That will be the outlaw, outlay of what they will do. And I think that's the right play. You want to have contingency plans in place because uh, we just don't know. We just don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going on. Um, you know, currently Oregon and and all universities, but Oregon is in a uh, a non-voluntary workout stage although it is voluntary at Oregon, I know. So what that means is, sure, they are allowed to be having workouts and the staff's able to work with them a little bit more than they were. But I know that, uh, you know, Oregon has decided not to make it absolutely, you know, non-voluntary for everybody. If anybody feels threatened, if anybody feels safe, if they're worried about their well-being, I know that Mario Cristobal is having dialogue with some of his players about that and wanting them to make you know, make it feel like they have a voice and that they're safe and not just being forced to do something they're not comfortable with. Um, do you think that a lot of players have, have taken them up on that? I think there's a few. I think there's a few. And, uh, you know, uh, what that means exactly, I don't know. I mean, and, and I'm not here to name names and I'm not here. You know, I've heard a few names, whether that means they maybe took a week off, maybe they missed a, a workout or two. Um, you know, all those things are, are, are being evaluated, obviously, and Mario Cristobal knows exactly who is and who isn't there and, and who's putting in the work. So uh, I think for the most part, for the most part, you've got a, a vast majority of Oregon players there. You know, the guys that you would expect to be there and want to be there are there and getting that work in. So, uh, you know, I guess we'll just kind of see. I, I guess ultimately I see this thing really ramping up over the next week or two weeks for us to kind of get some more. Uh, you know, finite, more defined rulings here of what's going to be allowed and what's going to happen. Yeah. And I think everybody's anxious to get there. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you there. I, I think about what's happened um, at the high school ranks where right. at the start of the week, the CIF, which is the governing body of high school f- sports in California, they come out and the majority of the CIF chapters um, – move football to 2021 and then the WIAA which is the same thing for Washington high school sports they do the same for uh, 2021 Oregon came out yesterday and they kind of punted the ball a little bit 
They didn't yeah. quite come out and ban, but they came really close to it for football. Um, they basically said, if we don't get a resolution by the end of September, we're not going to play this year. And uh, it just feels like if the high schools are making this decision and the pro sports have all made their decisions to, to do the changes that they want to, feels like college athletics has to make that decision now. Yeah, I mean, everybody's – I mean, the NFL obviously decided, hey, we're going to go ahead and move forward and and take it from there. Um, you know, obviously a lot of great decision makers there, a lot of guys in charge. I'm sure they're doing probably more consulting than anybody else is doing. Um, you know, so their research obviously told – you know, seemed to indicate to them that they could safely move forward at this point. Um, now, now a different element, you know, if you're, if you're basically – you know, if you're a paid athlete, uh, you know, they're going to be able to operate a little differently than, you know, jeopardizing a high school or a college aged person that's not getting paid technically for their work. Um, so I understand the difference is you can't just, you know, uh, paint a broad stroke and say, well, the NFL is playing. You guys should all play. I get it. That's not how it works. But all these guys got to start their fall camps. They have to have time to get ready for football. The coaches need to be able to come up with a game plan, whatever that might be. So if you set set a, a mid-August start date for fall camp, you know you can't just tell them on August 10th and say, "Yeah, you got five days to set up and get ready." You got to give everybody time. You've got to give uh, high schools, colleges, everybody. Um, you know, needs to be able to put their their plans in place and put their safety measures in place and all that. So we're certainly nearing that part of this uh, of this phase. And I, I guess I don't know. I I know fans are anxious to hear what the outcome is and, and I, I'd have to say that I'm definitely just as anxious as the fans to kind of know you know where things are going to end up yeah um, when when John Wilner talked about UCLA coming to Eugene do you like that matchup uh, well I mean I don't think Chip, Chip Kelly likes that matchup but yeah <laughs> I would I, I certainly think that that's a good matchup for Oregon um, you know I think one of the uh, biggest keys to this which is not very public, which we don't really know about, is probably the internal uh, jockeying, if you will, of certain schools trying to, you know, line up a favorable schedule or, you know, I, I don't think at the end of the day, I don't think anybody wants to play Oregon. I, I, I feel pretty strongly saying that. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, everybody's trying to draw straws to see who's going to end up having to play Oregon. And, uh, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, it would be pretty crazy it would be crazy to think because I think Chip Kelly's on the hot seat at UCLA. Um, and I think this is going to be a really defining kind of year for him down there. And, uh, you know, it would just kind of be interesting to think about if his final game at UCLA was actually took place in Eugene, Oregon this season. Um, it's just kind of a interesting little, uh, little byline there. How do you remember? Let's, let's play the hypothetical game and say, this is his last year at UCLA. How do you remember Chip Kelly? Uh, you know what? I, I, I think I've said this and I've, and I've, I've remained pretty, uh, you know, steadfast in my beliefs of, of Chip Kelly. Is there anybody smarter than him offensively when it comes to, you know, uh, dialing up an offense? I don't think so. There's not many. I mean, he's definitely in the upper tier, probably one of the top five guys, at least in college football, um, possibly in football, but you know, the, the, the same things that, that, uh, you know, make Chip Kelly great also hurt him. He is stubborn as all get out. Um, I know that that's been something that's kind of that that haunted him at Oregon just a little bit. Definitely haunted him in the NFL. 
I think it's also caught him at UCLA. Um, you know, uh, you know, his defense needs work. And as much as I like Azanaro, I know that's one of his buddies. That's his guy. Um, you know, the, the defense there just isn't very good. And secondly, the biggest thing, which I said from day one, from absolutely day one, Chip Kelly was going to have to recruit. He was going to have to get better at recruiting. He was going to have to be more personable. He was realistically going to need to step out of his bubble a little bit. And I just don't think he's done that. I mean, I, I, I just don't think he's done that. And I'm, I'm not sure that he ever will do that. Yeah. So, you, you know, for me, uh, I mean, here's the deal. As, as human beings, no matter what we're doing, if we're college football coaches, whatever our profession is, you always got to learn and evolve, right? You're learning and evolving in, in radio production. You know, I'm learning and evolving at running a site, all these things. And I just don't think that Chip Kelly has done very much learning and evolving. I think that, uh, you know, maybe offensively from a scheme standpoint, but just in terms of, of running a team, a successful team, um, I just don't think he's learned there. And I'm not sure he ever will. I think if if Chip Kelly could swallow his pride and somebody said, hey, I'm just going to make you my offensive coordinator, just, you know, run me an offense and make it work, Chip Kelly's going to excel in that role. But, uh, you know, he's got the money and he might be old enough that he never wants to do that. I don't know. So we'll play what if here. If he never left Oregon, you think he still has the same decline? Uh, I don't. I don't. I think you know. I, I I think you know the the things that that do hurt Chip Kelly the most, uh, which are recruiting and maybe being you know uh, personal. These other things are 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 things that Oregon can offer as the university as strengths. So UCLA is a tremendous school, beautiful campus. You know, no, I'm definitely not going to uh, bash on UCLA and what they have going there, but it's not Oregon. Oregon has built a brand that in terms of recruiting really resonates. And I'm not saying that that's the reason that Mario Cristobal is successful. We know that's not the case. But I think had Chip Kelly stayed at Oregon and continued to have some level of success that he was having, um, he might have needed to make some tweaks along the way, this or that. Um, you know, we don't know, but I think he would have been able to recruit at a level that would have kept him successful or at least at or near the top of the Pac-12. Um, would he have gone to national championship games year after year? You know, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. Um, but I still think Oregon would be, you know, competitive. But you'd still have that same issue that prior to Mario Cristobal's arrival, you know, Oregon had, which was they could run through the Pac-12, they could beat up these other teams, but you go and face those more physical Auburns, those more physical Ohio States, you know, those types of programs that are built with bigger bodied players, and they're going to wear you down. I mean, we saw Stanford uh, back in the heyday was able to wear down Oregon on a number of occasions. That was Chip Kelly's Achilles heel, um, you know, with Stanford being bigger, stronger, more physical, and just running the ball and controlling the ball, something that Oregon now excels at, under Mario Cristobal, um, you know, I think Oregon would have always been limited, but they would have, they would have been winning games. You would have seen them win 10, 11 games every year, in my opinion. So tell me about the brand difference here. Take coaching out, say you take the on-the-field on the product out. Where is the brand difference between Oregon and UCLA? Well, I think, you know, if we're talking about football, I think Oregon's built quite a brand in football. And, and, and even still... I mean, it's been a long time since we've kind of seen the high octane, you know, no huddle, no mercy, fast paced offense at Oregon. And still that resonates with offensive recruits. They think of Oregon, they think of offense, they think of all these things. 
And it's been, you know, four, five, six years really since we've kind of seen that type of offense, uh, that exciting level of offense, if you will, at Oregon. And I mean, it's kind of the same thing at USC. It resonates that way as well, that USC won all these games and they haven't been all that relevant in the last 10 years. But uh, in terms of UCLA, I think that they are able to continue to sell their brand in basketball. I mean, they're known as a basketball school, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the wooden days, everybody respects UCLA in that manner. But again, you're talking about a program that really hasn't won all that much in about, a, in I don't know, roughly a decade in college basketball or, or been all that relevant. Um, but, but you can ride all those things because of branding, because of relationships, because, you know, uh, this guy you know went to UCLA and loves UCLA and then he, he starts helping recruit you and all this and that. And uh, I think if Chip Kelly had stayed at Oregon, he would have had continued success. It would have been good. He went to the NFL. and I think, I think the shine really, really wore off there. Uh, in some very turbulent years in the NFL. And, and you know, you go back to the college game, of course, that's a huge draw. Chip Kelly, the offensive guy, blah, blah, blah. You know, UCLA made the right move at the time. I get it. But uh, I, I just think the branding that Oregon has done helps them sell to recruits. Uh, well, well, really in all sports, but especially in football, where I think UCLA is really uh, – UCLA up until now just hasn't put the resources into football. Um they just never have. And they've definitely been a little bit more of a basketball school. And I don't feel bad saying that, mm-hmm. but I think it's definitely helped them there, but hurt them in football. Um, had Chip Kelly been successful at UCLA and, and started winning and, and had some productive years and he still can, I think he would have been able to kind of parlay that, but uh, we have yet to really see it. Um, back to the uh, topic at hand um, earlier this week, California, basically moves high school football to 2021. And I know that not all of California has done that, but most. Because uh, I, I just can't picture the Ducks recruiting a kid out of Redding or <laughs> a Bieber, Tule Lake, one of these small towns way up north. Um, what kind of impact is that going to have for a program like Oregon that has turned California football into a breadbasket? What kind of impact is that going to have? Uh, I don't think it has much impact. I mean, you're going to continue to recruit the same way. I think really right now, uh, you know, what Oregon's looking for here is is the visitation rules. You know, when can recruits come on campus? When when can, you know, can coaches go on the road? Will that be an option or not? Um, I think those are the biggest things. And Oregon does need to get a few of these guys on campus. I think that's something that's important. But, you know, you've already seen a guy, the number one player in the country, Corey Foreman, come out and say, hey, look, if you guys are making me pick between playing you know, my high school football season in the spring or going to college, I'm going to college. And I, I think that's going to be, I think that's going to widely be the popular trend. If, if a player doesn't move out of state to go play somewhere that doesn't push it back. So, you know, if Arizona doesn't push things back, I wonder how many uh, top end players they end up getting in the state of Arizona that play a, a senior season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there are rumors that, uh, one of the top players in the state of Oregon entering his junior year uh, is is looking at moving out of state into Utah, who has you know basically said we're going to play football here in the fall like normal. So you just kind of wonder how that impacts things. We've seen Oregon be able to recruit nationally, so I'm not so sure that kids going to different schools really makes a massive difference uh, overall in the big scheme of things, but. 
I think it will just really make the dynamic of high school football that much more interesting. And right now the top thing to do the, in recruiting at least is to kind of monitor, you know, who's going to play their senior year and, and, and who is going to, you know, go ahead and leave early and get to college. Um, it's just very interesting because once again, Corey Foreman saying I'm going to college on, on the flip side, you've got Sam Heward, the five-star uh, quarterback commit for Washington has basically said, well, I was going to enroll early, but I'm going to stay and play my senior year uh in the spring so it's just to me it's fascinating to kind of watch how this unfolds yeah i i I think that going to college early like you pointed out that's going to be a quick trend and i could see where the colleges really would like that because you get the kid in the program early you get more time for him to acclimate and maybe you get an impact player a year earlier um but, but you've got kids in high school if one of your sons was going through this debate right now, what would you advise? Um, you know, it's definitely uh, I mean, that, that's tricky. I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously, I've done this, and I understand what's at stake for these recruits and what they're going through and trying to figure things out. Um, I could see a guy like a Corey Foreman, for example, electing to go ahead and go in early because you're talking about the number one player in the country, five star uh, recruit. I think he believes, and, and probably rightfully so, that he is uh, a potential three-and-out type of player, an instant impact guy. I'm going to go in to this. I'm going to go ahead and go into this program because ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, there's too much money riding on them. You know, they they they've got it. They they feel the need to get in there and get right. going, uh, kind of like Kayvon Thibodeau is doing. So, I guess really each player needs to take just take it case by case. You know, are they walking into a position group? that has an opening and they would have an opportunity to play right away. Um, you know, we've even heard that that five-star cornerback Tony Grimes committed to North Carolina uh, is going to reclassify into the 2020 class and going to go ahead and enroll at North Carolina now. So uh, that could be another trend that we watch uh, as well because, again, you know, some of these kids see the dollar. You know, they 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 are already looking at their NFL prospectus, which is crazy to talk about, but it's a reality. And uh, you know, um, for me and my kids, I don't think I'd have a kid that 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 uh, unfortunately quite fits on that radar. So I would probably tell them to stay in school and and finish school and and enjoy themselves. Right. right. Which which I think ninety nine point five percent of the kids should do. Hey, you only get to go to high school once. Enjoy it. College isn't going anywhere. You know, do your best not to get injured. Be smart, but go have some fun. Um, you and I both know we never get those years back. No. We don't ever. Get, we don't ever get to go backwards. You don't get to do your se- senior prom again. Um, you know, so for me, I would t- I would tell Oof. almost everybody to make it count. But um, you know, everybody's got to do what they think's best for them. Well, if I had the option, I would never redo my senior prom. I don't ever want to live that again. But uh, <laughs> but I but I agree with you. You know, I I think it's. It's an interesting situation where if you have a truly elite player like that who feels confident they're going to get drafted, it's just a matter of where. They feel like they're at least draftable right now. Um, go to college early, accelerate that growth process, get in a weight program, get with the assistant coaches, and, and take that next step for your career. And if you're the overwhelming majority of high school football players, I, I think it's best stay in school, stay with your friends, and have fun. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, and, and the and you know, uh, as much as 
and I'll even do it too, as much as we like to pick on rankings or whatever, let's face it, most, most, the numbers are in the favor of most five stars working out to some degree, whether they're a first round or top one pick, fifth yeah. round pick, whatever the case might be. Yeah. Uh, once you're in the NFL, you're in the NFL. Right. So, um, you know, I, I guess if I was a five star top 50 player, top 100 player or whatever, and I saw a great opportunity for myself to go in and, and make it happen. Um, you know, I, I can understand the reasoning, but again, like you said, and like I said, most of these kids and just stay in school, enjoy your time, continue to get bigger and stronger, work on your stuff, stay out of trouble. Um, and just enjoy that time because you don't ever get it back. Yeah, I don't often get to, to sound like an expert on this pod because you're the, the recruiting expert and I'm just a guy throwing questions your way. But I know as a really big NFL fan and I, and I love the draft and I get way into the draft every year, um, the best thing for draft analysis over the past, say, 15 years has been the rise of college recruiting news. Uh, they, I, I guarantee you, there's an NFL scout on every NFL team whose job is to read this stuff and dive into it when the kid is a freshman and he's got a highlight reel already. They're going to put that in his folder. And some of the same things that colleges care about, your measurables, and what did you do in high school? What was your character like? What your high school coach, your high school teammates think about you? NFL teams really value that stuff. So I agree with you in that a lot of these five stars now, like um, you, you might not know the name, but Khalil McKenzie is the one that stands out to me, where I think a few years ago, at one point he was a five-star and number one player uh, on the D-line in the country and kind of busts at Tennessee doesn't really do that well, but because he had such an extensive uh, highlight reel in high school, had the measurables people wanted, uh, had very high character. His father was an NFL player. His uncle was an NFL player. Um, He still got drafted seventh round pick. So, and, and that, is, is money in the bank for him. That's like half a million dollar contract that he got. Um, e- even if you don't really do anything in school, you go to school early, you take that chance that you're going to have an accelerated growth process, getting into the building early and, and getting that early opportunity with your coaching staff, and you go from being a bare minimum seventh rounder to being a guy that can really make an impact. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, you know, like you said, I if I was if I was running an NFL team, I'd have somebody that's dedicated to, you know, tracking, uh, you know, three dozen, four dozen uh, high school guys coming out, and you know, like you said, building a file on them, and then you can track their progress in college, see how well they develop, don't develop, what you know, did they get the right training, did the, what was the reasonings, um, you know, they didn't develop, um, you know, you that stuff is extremely valuable. Um, for any NFL pro, uh, uh, franchise. And, uh, you know, like you said, a lot of times these guys are willing, just like Mario Cristobal, we talk about it, these NFL uh, GMs are willing to take a chance or take a gamble on a body type. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to take right. a, they're going to take, they're going to take a projectable and say, Hey, this kid's six foot six, 300 pounds. We can figure out something for him to do. You're and, always going to uh, look for the things you can't coach. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, yeah, really interesting tangent to 
think about. But yeah, here we are. And, and, and I guess uh, the COVID pandemic's really uh, shined a light on some interesting topics. Uh, no doubt. No doubt. Um, I'm just going to check Twitter and make sure that we don't miss anything while we're taping this because I am really afraid that the Pac-12 is going to like reveal a schedule while we're not looking for it. Um, I don't see anything yet, so I think we're in the clear. But 10-game um, schedule, we're, we're guessing. And if I read this right from earlier, if UCLA plays the Ducks, Utah won't? Uh I don't. I don't understand. I didn't get into uh, all of those parameters, so I don't. I don't believe that's the case. I think you've got to add at least two games, is my understanding. Okay. So you're having to add two from out of your uh, division footprint. So I, I believe that that is the case. So Utah right would now. be the other one. Utah, yeah. So my belief is that they're putting Utah at the front of the schedule for Oregon. And UCLA at the end of the schedule, but I I have not I have not spent a lot of time going over that, so I would re- need to review and make sure my numbers are correct. But uh, I believe that that is the current discussion. How do you feel about that Utah game? Uh, I mean, Utah's a great team. They've always been a great team. I think they would like to have a little bit of revenge for what happened to to them in the Pac-12 championship game. That absolute beatdown. So it seems to be that for whatever reason, Utah's really pushing that game to happen for them. Um, as I've said and continue to say about Oregon, they're pretty much like, bring on whoever. We don't care who we play. Just give us a schedule. So, um, you know, I know they were pretty bummed to lose out on North Dakota State, uh, pretty bummed to lose out on Ohio, on Ohio State. And I, I think that there's a realization there internally that, you know, unless Oregon has a fairly strong schedule it's going to be tough for them to get to the college football playoff assuming that happens and uh you know the only way to do that is to schedule the toughest games you can uh within your own conference so i believe that that's something oregon would be excited to do do you think that's fair the idea that let's say the ducks go on a run this year and and i think that's still a question mark because i really like cal and and i i know that They've played Washington really close the last couple of years. But let's say they do that. Is it fair that they wouldn't get the benefit of a doubt uh, for for going unbeaten? Uh, you mean getting a uh, college football bid? Right. Like they would have to add Utah to make it seem like it was work for them to go unbeaten, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean – you know, strength of schedule is something we, we hear talked a lot about in the college football playoff, and I think that that's something that Rob Mullen is very well aware of, being as he was the chairman of the of the playoff committee. Um, I'm sure he's well aware of, of, of how strength of scheduling benefits or doesn't benefit you. Uh, again, I think for Oregon, you're taking, you're taking those tougher games. Well, uh, frankly, I'm not sure there's anybody in the Pac-12 that can hang with Oregon this season, so... Um, you know, really, it's it's a in my mind, it's a much safer bet than playing in an Ohio State, if you will, who's likely going to be bigger, stronger, and faster than anybody else you face in your own conference. But uh, you know, for Oregon to run the table and not get a bid, um, you know, I mean, we don't know. We we just don't know. You know what the rest of the landscape's going to look like. Um, you know, you'd like to think every year that it that it's fair and that. You know, you've got somebody from the Big Ten in the discussion. You've got an SEC 
team in there, maybe an ACC or a Pac-12, but we have seen two SEC teams get in there a couple of years now. So you just don't know. But I, I do think Oregon overall, I, I think the Pac-12 conference still is a little bit down overall. I think it's a good conference. I don't think it's a great conference. Now that hasn't hurt Clemson in the past, but they've been pretty elite. So it's hard to argue against that. I think Oregon just needs to beat whoever's in front of them, win all your games. I think that will be enough at the end of the day to get to get the bid that they want. If you were Larry Scott, how do you bring the Pac-12 up? Well, I mean, you, you got to get a TV right uh, TV rights deal in there. And the reason I say something that's viable, uh, you've got to do that because that brings in a lot more revenue, and and that revenue gets dispersed to the to the colleges for them to then spend on their coaches, their administration, uh, recruiting budgets, all these things that are important. I think that's a, that is the first domino that you've got to take down. You've got to get a great TV deal, and you've got to get these teams better exposure. They'll get better sponsors. All these things will come with added money. Once these universities can get more money, they can put it back into their football programs, which they're going to do because that's their bread and butter. And internally, and and then in turn, that's going to make the program, uh, you know, much easier to sell. It's going to make it more viable, and and I think that you will see all of the programs raised at that point. We saw a very huge disparity in the revenue numbers between the SEC and even the ACC compared to the Pac-12. That's a big problem. You've, I mean, that's a huge problem because a lot of these universities, say, for example, an Arizona or maybe a Colorado, don't have the big donor base that, say, a USC or an Oregon or a Stanford have. Uh, you know, so those those dollars really hurt. And I think that that's got to be the number one thing that Larry Scott's got to fix. He's really got to. And then and then once you've done that, you really got to go attack uh, the notion that the Pac-12 is not a top tier conference. And I think you got to go do that by getting on with, with the fine bombs of the world and getting on with those guys and having very passionate discussions with them about why the PAC 12 is relevant and should be, you know, much more respected as a conference. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if you're ever going to win the fine bombs of the world over though. Well, no, we all know where fine bombs allegiance is and I get it. That's what, <laughs> pay, that's what pays his bills and gets his rankings up. Right. But, uh, which unfortunately is what media has become is, is all about rankings and clicks and, and what generates that. But uh, um, you still got to do it. You got to get on there and you've really got to make a case for your, for your conference. And, you know, as far as we know, Larry Scott's sitting in his playboy mansion or whatever in San Francisco, <laughs> 10 floors up, probably sipping $1,500 bottles of wine all day or something. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, the, the Vegas penthouse is the story that always floors me with Larry Scott of if, if your hotel room needs an elevator, it's probably too much. Right. Might might be a little too much. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a nice little $500 a night uh, penthouse you probably could have got that would have suited you just fine. <laughs> but, uh, you know, okay, I guess we know where the money's going. <laughs> uh, a private elevator for a $7,000 Vegas penthouse, for sure. Um, just, just killing time, riffing and having fun. Um, Earlier, you mentioned Mac Brown going out and getting a five-star corner that is reclassifying to 2020. I don't know about you, but my eyes still blow up like saucers when I read about Mac Brown killing it in recruiting in 2020. What's the deal there? Why did he take so much time off? And and, and was he always this good? 
No, I, I think he's really uh, the anti-Chip Kelly. Uh, you know, again, you had Mac Brown uh, that, that rose to prominence at Texas, was a great coach. No doubt that he's a great ball coach. Uh, when you're winning, you're able to be selective in recruiting, and you can do things a little bit differently. And I think he did that at Texas. But once he started losing at Texas and the interest wasn't as strong as it had been, he didn't make adjustments. And ultimately, I think that's what led to his demise at Texas. He he was no longer the it school. And and again, you're talking about University of Texas. So you you if you're signing 25 kids a year, 23 of them are coming from the state of Texas. There's no really no real reason to right. leave that state for talent. You don't need other to. Than, you don't need to other than maybe a couple guys here and there that you you know, might really have your eye on. But ultimately, uh, you know, Texas A&M got better, recruited better. Baylor got better, recruited better. TCU, always a thorn in the side. You know, Gary Patterson, uh, Houston got better. A number of programs there in the state of Texas got better and really started chipping away. And when Mac Brown was no longer able to make the, hey, I'm making you an offer, you better commit on it tonight or it's going to be too late, um, he, didn't, he didn't make the adjustment in time. And uh, I think he took a couple years off, probably talked to a lot of other coaches about what made them successful, maybe did a little bit of soul searching. And it seems to, seems to be that he's really prioritized recruiting at North Carolina. He's prioritized keeping the in-state talent in-state there. Those are two huge, huge you know, things for him to be doing off the get-go. He's brought in a lot of experienced and very good coaches around him, and it appears he's letting them do their jobs. So I, I think he's made a number of adjustments where he was probably uh, a fairly stubborn individual as well, like Chip Kelly, but uh, it, it appears as though he's kind of made some reflections and made the proper changes. And, and you know, North Carolina – it's kind of a sleeping giant. It's a, it's a place that does produce some pretty good talent. Um, it produces some top-end talent like we're seeing. Uh, if you always want defensive linemen, you can go to the Carolinas, North and South Carolina. Um, beautiful school, beautiful campus. So, again, I think just within a, a, a neighboring two- or three-state footprint, you can do 75 to 80% of your recruiting right there if you're good, if you're winning, and if you – you know, really put an emphasis on it, and I think Mac Brown has done that. Now, I've heard you say this line before. If you want D linemen, you can always go to the Carolinas. Why? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if, <laughs> if, it's, tap, if it's the tap water or what, but, I mean, we've seen Oregon prioritize going to the Carolinas the last two recruiting cycles, and you start taking, you know, these three-star guys that, you know, uh, they're just kind of mid-level guys back there, but out here they come out here, and there's, you know, six foot seven, 250 pound creatures that can, can hit you and move. And it's just, we, we just don't have a hotbed like that out West. So for whatever reason, defensive linemen uh, live and grow in the Carolinas. That's where they come from. I don't know if it's hereditary. I don't know if, if it's coaching, who knows what it is, but it, it's definitely a, a truth in the college football recruiting world. Um, you know, uh, the out West, you can get receivers, speedy receivers and quarterbacks in abundance most years. That's why most programs come out, come out West to recruit their quarterbacks because California and, the, and Arizona and the Western footprint has those. Um, it, it's just kind of an interesting thing in, in, uh, you know, in, in recruiting kind of to follow some of the geography. If you want big Haas, you know, stout offensive linemen that are just you know, road grader, nasty little run blocking kind of guys, you go to the Midwest. We know that's where they're from. They're out there. That's why Nebraska, you know, recruits that footprint for there. Wisconsin has recruited that footprint for there. Um, it's just, 
it's just some uh, some of the hidden truths in recruiting. And and again, I don't know if it's water or diet or the you know or or just the genes that these guys are coming up with. But uh, that's kind of how it works. Yeah. Um, I feel pretty good about football topics this week. You got anything else on the gridiron that you want to talk about? Don't think so. It looked like on the old Twitter there that uh, basketball, uh, women's basketball, had started up a little bit of uh, workouts. I'm yeah. assuming they're voluntary workouts at this point, so it's nice to see them move in that direction. Uh, and then the last thing, which I didn't watch it, but I read all about it, was Bowl Bowl's huge game for the Nuggets yesterday. Oh, Everybody's yeah. raving about that. Yeah. Well, I, I did watch this, and he looked exactly like everyone wanted him to look at Oregon of stretch five he can hit threes and he can block and he can clean up the glass and i love the lineup that they trotted out yesterday they had they had four power forwards or centers in their lineup and uh obviously that's not going to be their lineup for the whole bubble in orlando but the idea of pairing the best passing big man in a generation, Nikola Jokic, with a stretch five who can play literally anywhere on the floor because of his shooting range, bowl, bowl, I think that makes the Nuggets really dangerous. Oh, yeah, really dangerous and dangerous for years to come. Um, you know, everybody's talking about uh, the Blazers having trouble with size-wise with the Lakers in a potential matchup there later on. And you start looking at the Nuggets like, well, they might even be a worse matchup for everybody with yeah. with the size and the length that they're going to have. So, yeah, like you said, they're not going to play with four power forward slash centers uh, on the floor at any given time. But to have that depth and be able to keep those guys fresh and the versatility, like you said, they're, they're different big men. They don't all do the same thing. Um, just kind of having that versatility is going to make them very difficult to defend and, and a very difficult matchup for a lot of teams. Yeah. Um, but it was good. It was good to see Bobo, you know, do that. I mean, it was just, you know, what did he have nine to 10 games at, at, at Oregon and everybody's super excited. And then the injury and that was all she wrote. So I think it's just nice for Oregon fans to kind of see him continue on and, and having some, some, some success there yeah. uh, in the NBA. I, I, I don't necessarily buy the idea that, if he would have stayed, uh, or or let's say he finishes that season, comes back from injury and plays in the tournament, I don't necessarily buy the idea that they would have been uh, better because I think they were forced to make a lineup change without him that was kind of a diamond in the rough and led them to the trajectory they took. But I, I still love the idea that... Uh, a defensive stopper like Kenny Wooten was on that team, having a all-around scoring threat like Bol Bol was, I think that gives the Ducks a balance with their big men that year and and an offensive balance outside of Peyton Pritchard that would have made them really dangerous come March. Yeah, they would have been they would have been a, a real force uh, in the tournament, and there there's no way that you know, you don't add Bull Bull to that roster, to that starting five, and they're not better. I mean, there's no way. I mean, he, he, even if it messes with your uh, chemistry a little bit, which it would have for a bit, they'd have, they'd have gotten that ironed out. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head. The biggest key would have been him being a secondary scorer and helping take some of the load off Peyton Pritchard because Peyton carried so much of the scoring load 
last season. I think having a second viable option mm. in bowl bowl uh, that can yeah. hit threes or score from inside would have been exactly what the doctor ordered for the ducks. But uh, you know, I guess we'll never know. And more importantly, they didn't get to a, a, a tournament anyway. So I guess it is what it is. Yeah. Um, I also, I can't not talk about Sabrina. I don't know if you've got this circled on the calendar, but 9 a.m. Saturday, ESPN is when she makes her professional debut. Are you all in on the uh, pro Sabrina experience? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's no way. I, I, I mean, just even as an observer, even if you're an Oregon fan and you didn't love women's basketball, you love Sabrina Ionescu. I mean, you're going to – I can't imagine anybody's not going to turn that on and, and cheer for her and watch that and see how her debut goes. I mean, I, I think we, you know, I, I, I'm sure I speak for most people. Everybody feels pretty strongly that she's probably going to end up being one of the greats in the WNBA, but um, it'll be interesting to see how it starts and, and, and see how her, how her talents translate into the WNBA. Because again, you're talking about a whole different class of, of basketball players and a whole different class of, of talent. Um, it'll be interesting to see how she measures up with everybody. What do you expect? Uh, I mean, let's just face it. When you, you know, I went back and I've started rewatching the uh, uh, the Last Dance on Netflix because they put it on Netflix now, and I was watching it with my boys last night. Watched the first two episodes, and some people, I mean, they just they just have it. They work hard. They 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 outwork everybody, and and they're just destined to be great. And I and I see that with hers. You know, every. Every story you hear about Sabrina, she's the you know first one off the court, last one off the court type of a story, and I don't think that she's you know going to be the one that gets to the NBA and, and suddenly changes her work habits. So you know, to me, I think that's the the biggest thing that separates people like like her or Michael Jordan, for example, is just the fact that they're relentless workers, and uh, and I see a lot of those traits with her. And uh, I certainly think she's going to be just fine in the WNBA. Yeah, I, I I love that you went there because I've often said I think there's a certain personality that makes a, an elite basketball player. And you don't have to be this personality, but this kind of person just tends to succeed. Um, Michael had it. Kobe had it. Just kind of cold, focused. You're you're shooting like crazy, like how Steph Curry was when he was a kid. Didn't go in the weight room, um, you know. Didn't didn't do some of the drills that other kids were doing. He would just shoot, and um, I think she has that. I, I think she has that personality. Is she the warmest, sweetest, friendliest woman on the planet? I don't think so. I, I see kind of a Terminator sometimes, but I think that makes her a really ruthless and effective basketball player. Um, you were watching Last Dance. What do you, what do you like about Last Dance? Uh, I mean, just I mean, you know, to kind of get some of the be- behind the scenes of what was going on in the locker room, and you know, this relationship or that relationship, and and, and you know, obviously some of it was public, some of it was in the newspapers or on ESPN or whatever, but just kind of to hear some of it and hear the the players re- reflect, um, and, and you know, I I. I I'm a, I'm a big I'm a fan of Michael Jordan. I can't say that I have posters up in my house to him or anything like that. But it's right. I mean I I think he's the greatest basketball player of, of all time, and, and it's hard to argue that. But uh, and I'm not going to get into to, to the LeBron versus uh, MJ debate. But uh, just to kind of hear him talk and 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 
and I think it was probably the most candid interview he's ever done. Uh, you know, at least since his playing career, the whiskey just, helped. Yeah. Oh yeah. The whiskey helped because there's certain, <laughs> it's funny how in certain stages it's, it's full, the glass is full. And then I was watching and they cut to a different part and it was like five minutes later and half empty. I mean, his eyes are bloodshot red and the whole thing. So it looked like MJ might've poured one on the night before too, but yeah, it, the whiskey might've helped, uh, helped loosen the gums a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, I was thinking about this. You've got kids that are old enough to, to think about sports and have opinions on sports. What do they think about MJ? Uh, I, both my boys love the game of basketball. They love playing. Um, they're pretty good players. I mean, for their respective ages. That, that, I mean, my, my kids aren't going to go end up playing at Oregon or UCLA or anything like that. But they're they're pretty good players. And uh, I mean, they you know they watched the first two episodes and you know just kind of watching him play and and the you know the way he talked about working and and just all the things that he did. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I'm trying to think here. I, I think one's uh, Tucker is 12. And he's a pretty big Kobe fan. Uh, probably because he loves to shoot the basketball. He is a shooter, and uh, I, I have to try to get him to pass a little bit more. But that's a whole different story. He's twelve, um, so I think he, I think he's a big, big, big Kobe fan. Uh, Cooper, who's you know fifteen, um, he's a big Dame Lillard fan. I know that's his favorite. And again, we, we, you have to apply those to generations. I mean, they're they're living in now, so the guys they see on TV, you know, are all those guys. Uh, I don't know that either of them are like, oh my gosh, LeBron is the goat. I I know they they like and respect LeBron, but they like other players a little bit more. Right. Uh, as far as far as MJ goes, I mean, I was sitting there watching it, and the second the second episodes when you know they enter the playoffs, and it's you know Dennis Johnson and 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 Danny Ainge and Larry Bird uh, and Kevin McHale all on the Celtics, and you know they're looking at them, and they know who they are because they're and my kids play NBA 2K like crazy. And they know, so they know who most of them were. And I'm like, you guys don't understand. That's a that's a Hall of Fame roster right there. That's a varsity team playing against JV that has one varsity player on it. You know, effectively, uh, is what it was at that time because Pippen hadn't arrived yet. But uh, you know, they didn't really get it. But uh, yeah, it's just it's funny. No, they think they think MJ's, you know, it's pretty unreal. And I know they've watched some of his uh, his his film his film and stuff. But I don't think they appreciate him like we do. You no, know, they definitely they definitely don't. No, and I think that's the best thing that'll come out of this documentary is I think it's going to teach a younger generation. It already has, uh, but now it's on Netflix and everybody gets to see it again. It's going to teach a younger generation about some of the greatest basketball players and the greatest of all time. Uh, Scoop Duck and Hi-Fi, I feel like this is a good spot for us to wrap this week. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think we nailed it all. Uh, we definitely got a. I'm pretty sure we got a full hour in. I haven't been keeping track, but I know we we got a good one in there. So I yeah. think we're I think we're on the money. All right, my name's Matt Bagley. He's Justin Hopkins. We'll be back next week. Scoop Duck and Hi-Fi. Uh, give us a listen. Scoopduck.com. Leave us a review right there if you'd like. Also, we post it on Twitter and on every podcast app you could possibly find. If you search for Duck. We're probably going to be the number one rated, probably going to have the most views and uh, the most fans that listen to us. Want to find it in full? Make sure you find it. Just search for Scoop Duck and Hi-Fi. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Go Ducks. I can do this now.